Okay, <coughs> the question is about good states. The good linear combinations are the ones that diagonalize the perturbation. Uh, yes. Sorry, and I was just going to ask if uh, there are going to be solutions posted to these. So yes. There will be. So, uh, every year students get confused about good linear combinations. It sounds all very mysterious. But it's the same kind of thing you would do in classical mechanics. And it was, it's so easy, you wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't even think about giving it a name. Except maybe choosing the right coordinate system. So we'll do a classical example. I solve a free particle in empty space. So I know I have particles going at constant velocity with some initial position. Now I'm going to add a perturbation. I'll put the Earth there. So there's a weak gravitational field. Now I get to choose a coordinate system on the surface of the Earth. I can choose my z-axis pointing up along the normal of the surface. And so the gravitational force is pointing down along the z-axis. But I could choose my z-axis to be at 13 degrees relative to that. I could do it, it's fine. But then I'll have a force acting in two different directions. So I wouldn't do that because it's stupid. And the same principle applies to quantum mechanics. You don't choose the stupid coordinate system. You choose the smart coordinate system. And eigenstates, eigenfunctions, are like basis vectors in wave function space. That's why quantum mechanics is like linear algebra. Except instead of x, y, and z coordinates, we also have coordinates in the wave function space. Those basis vectors in the wave function space are the eigenstates. So if we choose the eigenstates that make our perturbation Hamiltonian as simple as possible, then we're doing the clever thing. If we choose the basis eigenstates that make it as complicated as possible, then we're doing the stupid thing. So in classical mechanics, you would obviously automatically do this, the clever thing by now. So you just have to do the same thing in quantum mechanics, do the clever thing. So what's the simplest uh, basis for our Hamil perturbation Hamiltonian? It's the basis where the perturbation Hamiltonian is diagonal already. It doesn't get any simpler than a diagonal matrix. So the good linear combinations are the ones that make the perturbation Hamiltonian diagonal in that basis. And if you choose that basis, then you don't have to do any work because you've already diagonalized the Hamiltonian. You've found the first order perturbation corrections automatically. Make sense? Well, we'll practice. Uh, will no nearly degenerate states need to be treated in the same way as degenerate states? How would this be handled? Yeah, so the problem with degenerate perturbation theory was we had these energy denominators, 1 over En minus Em. If that gets too small, then our perturbation theory won't make sense. But you can do a similar thing as degenerate perturbation theory. When the states get very close, you can go in and choose <coughs> a basis that, that uh, semi-diagonalizes the perturbation. You can't completely diagonalize it. But if you make the off-diagonal elements small, then you can compensate for the small energy denominator. It's a similar trick, but we're not going to. That's for graduate school. Uh, I wish Griffiths. I wish. I can see the edge of the screen.
I wish Griffiths would have done a better job of explaining why the degeneracy gets lifted during perturbation. So, let's do our classical analogy again. I solved three particles, so I have a particle here and a particle here. They have the same energy. I introduced the Earth as a perturbation. Now they don't have the same energy. The degeneracy is lifted because there's some extra interaction that changes the energies of the two different states. Uh, I don't fully understand what the matrix W physically signifies. So W is our perturbation matrix. It's a matrix because we can take uh, H prime perturbation, make wedge one a bra on one side and a ket on the other side. So we can run over all the values of our subspace of degenerate states. So first example it was two by two, there were two degenerate states, so there's a two by two, there's a two-dimensional subspace of wave functions. So that's the matrix that represents the action of the perturbations in that subspace of states, the degenerate subspace of wave functions. So W is the perturbation operator represented by, as a matrix. Lunchtime. Oh, uh, I'm still pretty confused on how a perturbation is formed in a situation and why it does so many different things in different situations. It seems like a simple disturbance in the system. Exactly. So you have a system, you neglect all the little effects, you solve it, and now you make a little disturbance. But there's lots of ways to make little disturbances, and depending on how you make them, they'll do all kinds of different things. And that's why we use perturbation theory to figure out what they do. What if the perturbation was an irregular one which could not be described by a simple equation, i.e. h prime is unknown? Is there another method to solving the Schrodinger equation? So let's do our classical analogy again. If I told you here's, here's a problem, but the Hamiltonian isn't known, now solve the equations of motion. Could you do it? No. So what you'd have to do is do experiments measure what happens to your states or particles, and then guess a Hamiltonian, solve that one, see if it gives the right answer, repeat until you find one that gives approximately the right answer. So that's what uh, you know, people spent uh, the last hundreds of years doing in various problems, and they did it for planets going around the sun, and they've done it for electrons going around nuclei, and Hopefully, if you're lucky, you will get to do the same thing for some new system that hasn't been found yet. Uh, or at least not understood yet. Uh, the theorem that Griffiths mentioned, uh, the one that says if you find a Hermitian operator <coughs> A, it commutes with the original and a perturbation Hamiltonian, and then select eigenstates that are simultaneous eigenfunctions of the original Hamiltonian, then you can use first-order perturbation theory with these new states. Since A is permission, its eigenvalues can be observable, so is there any way we can think of A as an actual measurement or something that we can use? Our intuition can come up for a given problem. Yes, yes, yes. That is the whole point. A is permission, that means it's an observable, that means it's something that you should know about. The simplest example is always L squared <coughs> and LZ, or J squared and JZ. If it's rotationally invariant, it will commute with uh, 
the angular momentum. And then if you know the angular momentum eigenstates, then you're done. What exactly does the fundamental result of degenerate perturbation theory entail? So he's talking about he found the energy levels for a two degenerate state system. So he's diagonalized the two by two matrix. The perturbation in that case, there's two states. You make a perturbation, it mixes up those two states. You diagonalize that two by two submatrix, and you get that quadratic formula. It's finding the first order perturbation when you have to diagonalize the matrix of degenerate states. Uh, what's the physical significance that we can use linear combination of states? In quantum mechanics, if you have two states with the same energies and you don't measure anything else, then you don't know what linear combination you have. It's only by measuring some other observable that you know which linear combination you have. So, for example, if I turn on a magnetic field that splits the degeneracy, <coughs> and then I slowly turn it off again, if I've measured which energy state it was in the magnetic field and then slowly turn it off, then when I've turned off the magnetic field, I know what state I have. So, the significance is that wave functions can be linear, linearly superimposed without measuring other things. You need e extra information to know which linear combination you have. The most difficult part of this section was understanding how the equations governing good states relate to the more familiar concepts in linear algebra. So the whole idea is that it's exactly like linear algebra. The good states are choosing the basis vectors that diagonalize their perturbation Hamiltonian. So it is just a linear algebra problem when you get down to the math. And to be more specific, if I had a piece of chalk. So if we have some very big system, and it has degenerate states, we can divide it, the Hamiltonian into blocks, where each block is, this is some guys that have the same energy levels. These guys have the same energy levels. So there's several rows and columns in here. So these guys are all degenerate without the perturbation. When we add the perturbation, now we can just look at this subspace and try to diagonalize the submatrix. That's what the W is. It's the submatrix that we have to diagonalize. Once we diagonalize all the Ws, then we've diagonalized the full matrix, assuming there were no off-diagonal guys out there. Why is only the lower state an orthogonal combination and not the upper one, too? So this is a very serious confusion. The lower state is orthogonal to something. What is it orthogonal to? It's orthogonal to the upper state. So that means the upper state is orthogonal to the lower state. Now that we know about the degenerate case of perturbation theory, can we approximate most, if not all, quantum systems? Are there any that we still can't? Well, there's lots that you can't treat in perturbation theory, like the interactions between quarks are intrinsically strong. That's why it's hard to get a quark out of a proton. You've probably never seen a single quark by itself. Not even in lab. 
No one else has either. They're very strongly bound. So perturbation theory doesn't work for them. So you have to do something more clever. We'll get to some more clever things later on. Any more questions? So I have one more uh, <coughs> non-degenerate example to do. And now, finally, we get to do a real-world example. I have to switch the thing. It always shows that there's a little screen here, but it doesn't show me what it's projecting. It just shows me this all the time. I'll get the hang of it by the end of the quarter. So we looked at helium once when we solved hydrogen. We figured out that we could solve helium as long as we neglected the interactions between the electrons. So we said uh, we solved this problem. We had two electrons, so I goes from one to two. They had uh, kinetic terms. So, uh oh. No. Has anyone got a pen? I can't believe this. Okay, class is over. <laughs> but now I'll have to scan these all by hand. Who's got a smart pen? This remembers. That's why you get to see the notes online. Uh, what? <laughs> so there's a kinetic term for each electron. There's a Coulomb potential. There's a two alpha because there's two protons in helium. Depends on their individual distances. And then there was a perturbation that we ignored. That's the repulsion, positive repulsion term between the electrons. So we solved H naught because it was just hydrogen wave functions. Now we can use perturbation theory to take account of this repulsion term, at least at first order. So our wave function at lowest order was just a product of uh, hydrogen wave functions. So there was a wave function for electron one, wave function for electron two. They were both in the ground state. And then we anti-symmetrized the spin because they're fermions. And uh, we know the energy automatically because it's just the sum of some hydrogen energies. But now we want the first order correction. So what does perturbation theory tell us? It's the expectation value of the perturbation in that state. And uh, did you guys do problem 511 yet? No? Mm. The problem is calculate this matrix element. 
or this expectation value. So if you do problem 511, you can convince yourself that the expectation value of this crazy thing is 5 over 4 times the Bohr radius. Or you could just take my word for it. So now we get the first order correction to the energy is h bar c alpha 5 over 4 a. Does anyone remember what the Bohr radius is? It's uh, h bar over alpha times the mass times the speed of light. So we get 5 quarters alpha squared mu c squared which is minus 5 halves times the hydrogen binding energy. And that was minus 13.6 eV. So we get 34 electron volts. So now we know that <coughs> binding energy of helium is given by the first order term that we found before the zeroth order term we found before plus the first order correction. So last time we found minus 109 electron volts. The first order correction is 34 electron volts. So we get minus 75 electron volts. Experiment says that ground state energy is minus 79 electron volts. So we're happy when we had 109. Now we did first order perturbation theory, we got minus 75. We're pretty darn close. If we had another term, we'd be closer. Uh, yeah. But we're not going to do that. What we're going to do later is one more attempt without using perturbation theory. But, uh, just to whet your appetite. So what? What will we use? Uh, the variational method. Okay, finally, degenerate perturbation theory. <coughs> so, just to warm up, we'll do the twofold degeneracy. So, we have a Hamiltonian with two eigenstates with the same energy. We'll call it E0. And we'll label the states by A and B. And those guys are orthogonal because they're eigenstates. And so if we just measure the energy, we don't know what linear combination we have, so we'll write an arbitrary linear combination. Alpha times the first guy plus beta times the second guy. And that arbitrary linear combination also has the same energy. Now we'll add a perturbation. 
H prime, which will break the degeneracy. So our simple picture is we look at the energy versus the size of the perturbation. We'll get one state will up, go up and one state will probably go down. Now, <coughs> if we're down here where the size of the perturbation is very small, then these energies are coming close together. So we're approaching uh, a state like psi naught, some linear combination of psi A and psi B. So So we're approaching some, and those states are still orthogonal, because this one's always orthogonal to that, because they're different eigenstates. So if we choose, what we want to do is find the good states so that when we turn the perturbation to zero, they're the limit of the ones that we get from the perturbation as we take the perturbation to zero. So without the perturbation, we could choose any linear combination. With the perturbation, very small perturbation, it picks out a certain direction in the wave function space. Just like adding the surface of the Earth to our free particles picks out the z-axis. So we choose our axis so it's aligned with the force in classical physics. Here we pick our eigenbasis in wave function space so it's aligned with the perturbation, so that the perturbation matrix the Hamiltonian is diagonal. So at first order, we do the usual thing. we have the unperturbed Hamiltonian acting on the first order correction to the wave function or the perturbation Hamiltonian acting on the first order, zeroth order wave function. That has to equal the zeroth order energy times the first order wave function plus the first order correction to the energy times the zeroth order wave function. So we're just collecting all the terms where the perturbation contributes once. So when we did this before, we took inner products. Now we get, there's two choices for inner products. So we'll take psi A first. So I'm just putting the psi A bra on this equation. We're, we treat these guys as kets, or we're just labeling them as kets. They're still the same thing. But this Dirac notation is so much prettier. that bar there. So I just put a psi A0 on the left of every term there. The energies are just real numbers so they come outside the integrals. 
and since H0 is her mission, I can act on the left or the right. If I act on the left, I'll just get E0. So this term cancels that term. So just like before, we get that <coughs> some matrix element of the perturbation Hamiltonian is related to the first order energy correction. Now our psi zero was a linear combination of A and B. So if we put in what that is, we'll get a contribution from the psi A term proportional to alpha. And we'll get a contribution from the psi B term proportional to beta. And on the right hand side, a and B are orthogonal, so we only get the psi A contribution. And they're normalized, so just get alpha times the first order energy. So if we write these matrix elements as a matrix, we'll write Wij is the I bra the j ket then we can rewrite this equation as alpha w a a beta w a b equals alpha e1 and we're going to use that equation again Now we could go back and do the same thing taking an inner product with psi b instead of psi a. And I could write all these equations with a replaced by b, but I won't. I'll just get to the last step. So if I put in a b here, then on the left I would have a b instead of an a. I would have alpha WBA plus beta WBB. And on the right-hand side, I only got an alpha term because A was orthogonal to B. But now if I have a B here, I'll pick out the beta term. So I've just done ordinary-looking first-order perturbation theory by keeping all the terms first order. We took inner products with the two basis states. Now we just have to massage the equations a little and get the answer. So I'm going to write, uh, I'm going to multiply this first equation by WAB. Actually, I'm going to multiply I'm going to multiply this second equation by WAB. And then I'm going to collect all the beta terms together.
so I subtract this guy. And I could factor out the WAB. back to the star equation and solve for beta from there. So I'll get beta WAB equals alpha V1 minus alpha WAA. Now we'll plug that into the second equation that we just had. alpha WBA WAB plus beta times something. So we'll plug in, we had beta WAB in fact. So we'll just plug in this for beta WAB. Now every term has an alpha, so if alpha is not equal to zero, divide through by alpha. And then we'll get the quadratic equation for E1. So multiplying this out we get a minus E1 squared. And then there's a, <coughs> a WBB plus a WAA times E1 minus a W AAWBB. And over here there's a WBAWAB. And then I can, if I multiply it by a minus sign, and recognize the quadratic equation with coefficient 1 in front. So then the solutions. Guys, remember the formula? One half of minus b plus or minus the square root of b squared minus 4ac. Let's just write that down. So we'll call the two solutions plus or minus. So after I multiply through by a minus sign, uh, this is b. So minus b is wbb plus w. AA, and we have plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4 times A is 1, and C is this mess over here. Oh, and since this is some <coughs> Hamiltonian. It's Hermitian, so WBA must be the complex conjugate of WAB. So I'll write that as the modulus squared because I ran out of room on the page.
mattresses. And can life get any simpler than that? Mm, a little. Because there's, what's the cross term here is WAA plus 2 times WAAWBB. Here's minus 4 times WAAWBB. So we could write that as the difference squared. So there's, we've solved for first order correction to the energy. If alpha was not equal to zero, if, if alpha was equal to zero, then the normalization means that beta is equal to one. But if beta is equal to one, then, uh, oh, if alpha is equal to zero, beta is equal to one, this right hand side is zero. Beta is 1, so WAB is 0. And if WAB is 0, then this term would have been 0. And if we go back to our other equation, alpha was zero and WAB was zero, then w the energy is just WBB. WAB is zero, and I plug that into this formula, what will I get? So this term vanishes, and I have the square root of a square. then the plus solution, I add them, we'll get 2 times WAA, and then the WBBs will cancel. And remember W was this matrix element, in this case a diagonal expectation value. For the minus, then the WAA cancels, and I just get WBB. So, 
the formula agrees even when alpha is zero. And if alpha was zero, or equivalently if beta was zero and alpha was one, then we would get this. Then that means that the off diagonal guys are zero, which means that perturbation matrix was already diagonal, which means that A and B were already the good states. just to convince you that uh, this is all about diagonalizing the Hamiltonian, we'll just do a little check. So good states should be orthogonal. So let's check. We took the overlap of our states. Since we know what the psi zero was, it was alpha psi a plus beta psi b, so I know what the orthogonal state to that is, and so do you. First calculate the... So that should be zero, right? how we make orthogonal states, so let's check it. This will only have an overlap with that, so that'll be a beta star alpha. But it's complex conjugated, so it's inside the ket, but that means it's the complex conjugate of that wave function. So complex conjugate of beta star is beta. And then this one only has an overlap with that, and we get minus alpha beta. So that's the orthogonal state. Now let's check that those are the right, uh, that that actually is the good state. So if we look at the matrix element of the perturbation Hamiltonian, now. So we'll get a beta alpha term and it's the expectation value of H prime between psi A0 so that's what we called WAA then there's a beta squared term that's WAB there's a minus alpha squared term that's WBA, and a minus alpha beta WBB.
So from our previous equations, we know that alpha WAA is alpha E prime minus WAB times beta. And beta WBB is beta E prime minus alpha WBA. That's what we just derived on the previous page. So if we plug that in, here's an alpha WAA. And here's a beta WBB. So if we collect the terms multiplying E1, that's 0. Uh, there's a couple of beta squared terms. There's a WAB minus WAB. That sounds like 0. Here's an alpha squared term. Zero again. That's all the terms. Zero. So that means that the off-diagonal terms, the perturbation matrix, in these states, good states, or zero. That means it's a diagonal matrix. So that means the good states diagonalize the perturbation matrix. Does everyone know what a good state is now? So, because that's so boring, I mean, it's just linear algebra. And you know that backwards and forwards, upside down. It's too easy. So you don't want to ever have to do that unless someone asked you on an exam or held a gun to your head. So you might want to know the shortcut trick to avoid all that. So, oops. Find Hermitian operator A. That also commutes with the Hamiltonian and the perturbation Hamiltonian. Then if we have some states with different with the same energy but different A eigenvalues. Same energy at first at zeroth order. So that means A acting on 
little a wave function has some eigenvalue mu, and a acting on the b wave function has some eigenvalue nu, and mu is not equal to nu, then the off-diagonal elements of the perturbation Hamiltonian must be zero. And if they're zero, that means the matrix is diagonal. That means these are the good states. They're the ones that diagonalize the perturbation Hamiltonian. So the proof is we just count, we know that uh, the commutator of A and the perturbation is supposed to vanish. That means if we take arbitrary overlaps with wave functions, it'd still better vanish. This guy is zero, so if I put it inside some overlap integral, it's still zero. So if we write that out, that's a B. We have two terms. Seems easy. A is our mission, so it can act either direction. So that's like that. Psi A and Psi B are eigenstates of A, so we just get their eigenvalues. And uh, that these matrix elements are the same, so that's mu minus nu times WAB. That's what the definition of WAB is. And so mu is not equal to nu, but this is equal to zero. So WAB is zero. So the moral of the story is find an observable A, then use non degenerate perturbation theory. If you can think of an observable that's simultaneous, that commutes with both of these, that means it can have simultaneous eigenvalues. But then, in that the basis of its eigenvectors, you've already diagonalized the matrix, so you don't have to diagonalize it again. And you saved going through all that rigmarole we just did. Just but if you what? You just have to guess. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> as you do more problems, you're, you will build up your intuition of what uh, are useful things to guess. But prob probably an exam question is not going to be, can you, can you guess a guy that will diagonalize the problem for you? The exam question would be, uh, given this observable, is it diagonal? Or I'm not going to tell you what the observable is. Please diagonalize it, because I like it. 
punishing you guys. Well, not really. Okay, so I think we're over time. Any questions?